Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. Support for The Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. When I first started the hall on Franklin, I told everyone I thought the food hall was dying. And I think it, it is. So that was a perfect time for you to yeah, I will jump so in. I'm Robin Sessingham, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. When Jamal Wilson decided to open the first food hall in Tampa, the Hall on Franklin, he was determined to do it differently. Jamal tells producer Dalia Cologne why he began the design of his building with the details in the bathrooms. Plus, the Hall on Franklin is in an historic building, and the Tampa Bay History Center's Rodney Kite Powell talks about how those spaces with a backstory can affect the whole eating experience. But first, writer Janet Rich Elsbach. She's written a guidebook to helping our friends, family, and community through various challenges with the gift of food. She speaks from the experience of caring for her own terminally ill sister and learning to appreciate the importance of nourishment for the caregiver as well as the cared for. When you want to support a family with a new baby, the neighbor who just moved in, or anyone else that could really use a hot meal and some human connection, you'll find recipes along with beautifully written essays in her book, Extra Helping, Recipes for Caring, Connecting, and Building Community, One Dish at a Time. Well, Janet, I feel like I already know you. (laughs) Your writing is so, um, it's funny and it's accessible and I felt like you were writing to to me. <laughs> I, I felt like you were writing to a slightly harried, um, busy friend who uh, wanted to help. Well, thank you. Uh, that's what I was aiming for. So that's certainly really nice to hear. Let's talk about lemons. <laughs> lemons, this is a theme that runs throughout your cooking. and It's basically the Book of Lemons. Is, it, the, I just came up with an alternate title for the Book of Lemons. It really is a lemon curd, lemon preserves, lemon soup. What What is it about lemons? That's a really good question. There's something very transporting to me about lemons. I guess there's people in the world who don't like lemons, and I don't mean to exclude them. <laughs> um, but I... Uh, in that period after my sister died, one of the gifts that I received was from a friend who lived at the time in a lemon grove. And she would, and she still periodically will send me a box of lemons from California. Um, there's, I don't know, it's it, they're almost universally available. Not as fine as those lemons, but a lemon is pretty universally available. And it has an incredible fragrance. It has a very distinctive way in which it makes things taste better. Um, it's it, it, it's not a, necessarily a subtle thing. Um, and I've, I think I talk about it in the chapter around grief that tiny little sensory experiences, not like, you know, caviar with truffles, but just little moments like that are very grounding. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and especially if it's something that a thread that runs through your existence, I've always really loved lemons. So, you know, the smell of when you grate the zest of the lemon, it, little sensory experiences like that ground you and connect you. Wake um, you up. They wake you up and in an, and not in a, I, I found for me anyway, going through grief, anything too pleasurable was just a little mm, uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but like a tiny little thing like that was really grounding. And I think I talked about it, too, with the smell of miso soup, which is another thread that runs through my life. Mm-hmm. When it's a consistent flavor or consistent scent or whatever the the sense that it's awakening is, it, it really does anchor you. It calls you back to a time when maybe this was a positive in your life or this was you, you approached it in a different way. I just find we're animals, really. Um, we pretend that we're r- ruled by the thinking parts of our brains, but we're all mammals. And... You know, the fir- our fir- all mammals' real first experience of life is through flavor, um, and scent is very you know is a is a very powerful guide and you know tactile experiences. Any any time we can circle back to those kind of very basic elemental ways that as a as an animal we respond, I think is is really grounding. So let's- and and pretty universal. You know, people can, as I said, people can experience things in very different ways, but that's a pretty universal thing. That's right. Well, let's talk about the lemon soup. Tell me a little bit about it. Well, um, it's a pretty standard, basic part of the toolkit for people who are taking care of other, for Greek people that are taking care of other Greek people. Um, And it's just, it seemed just right for that circumstance, trying to. In, inject a, a little space for self-care into a, a day that's mostly taken up with taking care of other people. The the sharpness or the tanginess of the lemon, the slightly surprising, for most people, not quite familiar way that that soup it's, it's got this sort of velvety consistency. Um, all of those things felt like, I think that the broccoli in that chapter has a little tiny bit of spice and also probably more lemon. Um, all felt like good ways to kind of give this person not so much, you know, caviar and truffle oil that they would feel odd. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, For me, um, supporting my sister through that illness, pleasure was, I, I was very aware that I could, t- I could leave the room of cancer. I could leave the building of cancer, even for just a few minutes. And she couldn't. And it was a real effort for me to come to a place of understanding that I had to in order to be able to come back and take care of her, at the same time understanding that she couldn't, that she she really didn't have the option to to take an hour where she wasn't thinking about it or or experiencing it, um, and those are very delicate balancing acts that we do as humans. Um, that, as you remind us, you have to because. But you have to. You have you to have be to, strong. Yeah, you have to. You can't serve from an empty bowl. Right. You have to somehow um, shore up what you're drawing on to be able to offer it to somebody else. The way that you write is so relatable and it feels like a friend just telling you on the phone how to make something Mm -hmm. because you, it makes me laugh. It said, when you're talking about the kanji and you're saying, it does sound surprising because it's only one cup of rice and you're adding 10 cups of water or chicken stock. 
So it seems like it's just would be just floating in this liquid. Mm-hmm. But you, and you say, if you've never tried it, you will wonder what in the world I'm having you do. And that's so I'm glad you put that in there because that's exactly what people who are doing it for the first time are going to be thinking. I'm not doing this right. This can't be what she means. And so for you to come out and say that, you're going to think this is crazy, but just keep going. Um, It's comforting. And then you also talk about tossing the chicken with the cornstarch and some spices, and you, you say... The attempt to toss will lead to a worrisome clump, <laughs> but mix as well as possible, and it will work out fine in the end. Though That kind of encouragement is very welcome. I, I've always found it welcome, and I know I found it welcome, especially when I was learning to cook. I had a, a friend who was, well, she was in her 90s when she died, and I was probably in my 20s at the time. So she was a good bit older than me, and she gave me one year a, a little tin box full of index cards with recipes on them. She was a great cook. Um, not a fancy cook, but just a very capable home cook. And she had this wonderful spidery handwriting. And and all of her recipes included things like, this is going to look like a mess. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is. It's very comforting when you're standing there in the kitchen, especially if you somehow feel stressed about showing up for people with food and you think, oh, my God, now what have I done? This thing looks like a lump. Mm-hmm. To, you need to, have to someone, know it. Yeah. You need to know that it's it's probably going to be fine. And also... If your cookies are lumpy or they're whatever, I really do believe that the net result of cooking for another person, even if your cookies don't look ready for a close-up, the net result is positive because there's just no way around the fact that you have you stood in your kitchen even wrestling with something, thinking about this person, thinking about showing up for them for the time it took you to plan it out and execute it and then bring it to their house. Well, Janet, it has been so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was really enjoyable. Janet Rich Elsbach, where can we find you? You mentioned that you had a blog. I have a blog called a raisin and a porpoise.com, um, which is out there in the world. And the book is called Extra Helping. Thanks, Janet. Take care. You'll find the recipe for Janet's lemon soup and her recipe for a comforting congee on our website, thezestpodcast.com. Now, get to know the man behind Tampa's first food hall. Before Armature Works and Sparkman Wharf, there was the Hall on Franklin. Its 2017 opening in Tampa Heights brought the food hall concept to Tampa with items ranging from poke bowls to fried chicken and waffles to something called the Sleazy Sunday. Developer Jamal Wilson tells the Zest producer Delia Cologne that he's reinventing the concept of food halls. My name is Jamal Wilson. I'm the owner and developer behind the hall on Franklin. It's an 8,000-square-foot food hall, uh, first food hall in Tampa, first full-service food hall in the country. And uh, we're looking to expand, and um, we think the concept has legs, and we want to take it to different cities around the country. So when you say a full-service food hall, what does that mean exactly? So a typical food hall has, um, let's say, anywhere from 5 to 20 vendors. Um, At a typical food hall, you would have to walk to each vendor, pay for your meal, get a... um, some kind of buzzer or ticket, and someone would call your name or buzz, you'd go back and get the food. So with our food hall, you can sit anywhere you want in the space, and we have uh, servers that come take your order for all six of the restaurants or the cocktail bar, and we have food runners that will bring the food to you. So it's actually 
you have a lot of diversity, a lot of choices in food, but you're still getting the service that you expect at a normal restaurant. I've been to your food hall, and that okay. is a really nice feature because I went to another food hall that shall remain nameless. <laughs> and I knew my kids would want pizza. Right. I didn't really want pizza, but I didn't want to stand in another line. Yeah, so we all got pizza. That's exactly it. So you have to imagine when I first had the idea, I spent six months traveling around the country going to different food halls. And I was also looking for multiple vendors in other places to bring them to Tampa. So I would go in a place and I'd order eight different items. And I would have eight buzzers on my table. And as a buzzer would buzz, I'd have to run up and get the food, come back, have someone hold the table. And I'm like, this experience sucks. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of like a game show because you're trying to eat all your food while it's the right temperature. That's exactly it. Yeah. So you said six restaurants. What are they? Um, So we have Sorolina, which is the sister concept from Bavaro's. Um, We have Zillow, uh, which is street Mexican. We have coffee, which is a full-service coffee bar. Uh, we have pokey rose. If you know anything about pokey, it's a sushi-grade fish, kind of a Hawaiian concept. We have North Star, which is street Asian, and that's owned by the owners of Anise. We have bacon babes. We have fork and hen, um, and that is southern comfort food. We have whole fried chickens, um, chimichurri steak boards, uh, whole fried fish that kind of run the gamut. But they're classically trained chefs. Uh, they're trained at fresh, French Laundry. Um, they're pretty amazing. And we have a full cocktail bar ran by Ro Patel, which is kind of the craft cocktail expert in this area, kind of the southeast. Well, that's some cred. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He's a bad man. (laughs) Uh, But apparently you are, too. You're like the man behind the curtain. This food hall is gorgeous and everybody's buzzing about it. Are people surprised to learn that you're the guy behind all of this? I hope so. So it was my um, intention to not be out in the front. I really like the experience of going to the food hall and hanging out with my friends, so I kind of wanted to just be able to be anonymous. But as we started to grow and actually get people in, I started to realize that there needs to be someone out front to talk about, you know, the food hall. Especially you have people, this is their first time in this industry. You know, they're supporting their families, and it would be selfish for me to hide in the background when I can hopefully promote it and get more people to come in. So that's the first thing. Yes, I'd rather it be anonymous for me, but people are surprised. I think... Um, A couple reasons. One, if you know me, restaurants wasn't my background. I had never opened up a restaurant before. So I think people are kind of interested to hear my take on it since this is my first restaurant experience. Um, And also being a a black male, there's not really a lot of us in this industry, in this city or in the country for that matter, that are the principal owners of a restaurant, especially one that's as big as 8,000 square feet. And it's good, though. Uh, And it kind of permeates our whole uh, concept. We're really diverse from the people that come in to the people that work there, to the owners of the different venues. Um, You know, we just kind of run the gamut. Are other restaurant owners kind of looking at you sideways because you have no experience with this, but you're so successful and you're able to attract such a diverse uh, following? Like if, if I had been in this game for 30 years, let's say, and then here you come with no food background and you're crushing it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, what do you say to those people? Yeah. You know, so this it's a funny industry. Um, yeah, I honestly I tell people and they think I'm joking, but every time I see someone walk in, it's like Christmas morning, right? Like I used to own a mortgage bank and a title company and a real estate company, and you could kind of manage your volume. Um, you can control it. You would lower the rates to get more volume. You raise the rates to slow it down. With the restaurant industry, every day is a new day. You have no idea who's coming in. So I just think. We hit at a right time, we're in a right location, and we have a really good good mix of food, that, that um, food operators. So 
I'm more fortunate than more responsible, I would say. But And to be honest, I've been embraced by the restaurant community. Everyone that I talk to has been very kind, very open and transparent from before I started to now. Um, and I think it's kind of a close-knit. I, I think you have a lot of chefs that that maybe understand that this is an opportunity for new chefs to open up their first first location. And when you've been a chef in multiple restaurants, you really want to open your location. So I think me offering that opportunity kind of um, ingratiated myself into the community. Um, and I think also people like to, to see kind of an underdog. Like, I'm not a wealthy man. I put every dime of my money into this. So it's not like, you know, I have a huge amount of money and I can afford to take a loss. I think when we all came together and everyone realized, hey, like, he's not far removed from where we are financially. He's one of us. If he loses, then he could lose everything. So we're in it together. And I think that helped galvanize us as a group moving forward. Okay, so you talked about uh, right time and kind of right place. Let's zero in on the building itself. Uh, That's a historic building. And how did you know that building was a right fit for you? And, And and just talk a little bit about the transformation of the building itself. Yeah. Uh, let me go back a little bit. In 2013, I sold my company, and I spent two years kind of uh, flipping houses and uh, raising my uh, two boys. So I had two years of getting to understand, like, design and flipping houses. So I felt comfortable about walking into a space and being able to recognize if it has good bones. Just the structure of it, the lighting, just the beautiful character of the building. And I really like the juxtaposition of an old building with modern uh, feel. So... From the beginning, it was a perfect palette to kind of work. Talk me through some of the the features and why the aesthetics were important to you. Yeah. um, So we have really big, comfortable uh, antique leather couches. We have uh, beautiful wood tables. We have restoration hardware lighting. I call it modern rustic. And then we try to spend – my thing is – is details. A lot of times you'll go into a restaurant and the restaurant will be beautiful and you walk in the bathroom, it's terrible. So my thing is you always got to finish the play, right? So everyone told me when you get to a certain point, no matter who you are, there'll be um, pressure points where, oh my God, I'm running out of money, I can't finish. And that's why a lot of times you go into a restaurant and the bathroom isn't done to that same level as the rest of the restaurant. They ran out of money. So I started with the bathrooms because I'm like, if we start with the bathrooms, we do the bathrooms at a certain level, I can't not maintain that level in the main space where everyone will be. So I kind of forced myself to go beyond my comfort zone. So I think everything that you touch there from the lucite handles on the women's bathroom to the the rustic uh, hooks for um, women's purses, we just try to step up the level and go to a certain level that we think Tampa deserves. And uh, and it, was, it wasn't started with me, right? You go to places like Oxford Exchange that are beautiful. Um, you go to uh, places like Mise en Place, which I love, um, Rooster and Till, the level of food. They were setting the bar, and I felt it's a challenge, right? When someone sets the bar at a certain level, if you don't meet it or, or try to go past it, then really what are you doing it for? So um, those, those people really set the challenge for me, and I wanted to, to kind of meet the challenge and, and be able to say my space can go hand-in-hand hand with any of those locations in Tampa, if not, you know, anywhere in the country. So. I think you got it. Thank you. Okay, so you have a real estate background. Yep. And did you go into this feeling like, I am a real estate guy whose next building project is a restaurant. Like I said, I spent six months traveling around from New York to Denver, Atlanta, um, Miami, everywhere, going to all different food halls. And I realized that in a lot of ways it's a real estate play. So I lease out the food vendors. I lease out their stalls. And they control the food. They find the food purveyors. They create the menus, which are things that I wouldn't have any expertise in. And it allowed me um, to be able to develop and build and design the space, which is something I really like. 
Why do you think food halls work at a time when fewer people are going to the mall food court? We can get our food delivered. We can get our groceries delivered. Why are people still coming out to sit down and have a meal together in a space like this? So that's a loaded question. When I first started the the hall on Franklin, I told everyone I thought the food hall was dying. And I think it, it is. So that was a perfect time for you to yeah, I will, jump so I, in. I consider ourselves more of a collective eatery. Yeah, when you first think of a food hall, you're you're like, oh, great, I can try different f- I'll try Spanish. Uh, my significant other will get Italian, and we can sit and have a good meal, and we won't argue about where to go. But the reality is, is that I want to try a little bit of Spanish. I want to try a little bit of Chinese. I want to try a little bit of Italian. That's how I tend to eat. So I think if you don't have a full-service experience, that makes it a little bit difficult. So in that perspective, I think there needs to be a shift in, in the food hall dynamic kind of towards where we're, where we're pushing forward. But... I think what people are looking for now is not just a place to eat, but an experience. Um, I think people like to sit down, eat, and have a DJ playing music or be able to sit down and eat and then step outside and walk outside and talk and come back and finish the meal or um, sit down and eat and say, hey, you know what? Let's continue this. I'm having a good time. Let's go over to the lounge and let's relax and uh, have a couple of drinks. <laughs> that's like you could have you could have like three dates. That's exactly it. <laughs> like, OK, first we're going to do coffee. The yeah. coffee's going well. All right, let's move over here and have lunch. Now let's have a drink. No, that's exactly when we first opened. I told everyone, I was like, man, we'll have people here for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And I don't think people understood I was saying the same person for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And we've had that. We've had people come in and grab a cup of coffee before they go to work, bring coworkers back for lunch and then head home and bring their significant other back for dinner. Like, hey, you have to try this space, which is like really cool. It's, it's an unbelievable thing. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, retail is dying. Um, the malls are transitioning to having more exper- experiential um, restaurant experiences. A uh, perfect example is Arocco's Taco in International Mall. Um, it's not just a restaurant. It's kind of an experience. It's like people going crazy, drinking tequila, having a good time. Uh, malls and, and places are understanding that this is what people are gravitating towards. The uh, stuffy, um, you know, old world steakhouse is It's not where it's at. Millennials and even... Even people of my generation or, or older want to have an experience. You know, if you're going to spend your money, you want to have a full experience and enjoy it and have something different than, you know, what your parents had when they went out to dinner. So, you know, I'm fortunate enough to say that we serve, you know, 15,000 to 20,000 people a month. And that's a, that's a huge compliment to what we do and a huge compliment to the growth of Tampa as a city. So I'm just thankful to be one of the, the stewards of the restaurant industry in this area. That was Jamal Wilson, owner and developer of The Hall on Franklin, speaking with producer Delia Colon. So in Tampa, we've got a lot of new restaurants opening up in historic buildings, and the restaurants kind of get some instant charm, I guess, from the atmosphere and the history of the building. Rodney Kite Powell is a historian with the Tampa Bay History Center, knows all about history in this area. Rodney, thanks so much for being with me again. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you. So the Armature Works, that was um, where they would keep streetcars in the old days. Yeah, the Armature Works building uh, is a really, really neat old building that was built for industrial use, not really built to be that attractive or... Uh, any kind of attraction. Uh, it was built by Tampa Electric Company in the early 1900s as the streetcar barn and as the central location for them to do maintenance and 
uh, really assembly of streetcars for their very extensive uh, streetcar system. And um, its location is is logical given that it's near downtown Tampa, but not right in downtown on the river. So they can, if they need to bring in parts by water, they can do so uh, close to the rail lines, but also very close just to the, the hub of the streetcar system, which stretched at one time all the way up to Sulphur Springs to the north, um, all the way down to Port Tampa City and Ballast Point to the south and throughout West Tampa, throughout Ybor City and Hyde Park and downtown Tampa. It was an incredible system. And so that building to maintain the system was very important to the city. So that has been taken over now and there's a there's a food hall inside. Yeah. So the food hall concept is something that wasn't born here, but uh, Armature Works, I think, does it really, really well. And they do it in an historic building, which is a great example that once a building, uh, once the, the use of a building is no longer needed, it doesn't mean the building is no longer needed. And so the adaptive reuse of, of the Armature Works, which um, after the Temple Company stopped using it, it was a, a company, Tampa Armature Works, used it to build uh, machines for the phosphate industry. But it had sat vacant for 20 years or so on the, the the river in Tampa Heights until it was redeveloped for the Armature Works Food Hall. And they used the spaces in there in a really creative way. What do you think it is about a historic building that really appeals to people? Well, I, I think in your opening you said that, the instant charm. Yeah. Uh, it really – and not that new buildings, not that new construction can't be charming, but there is something about being in an old building that has that's it's seen a lot in its past you and feel you like it has see, a story it itself absolutely the building does. itself not just the food not just the restaurant yeah and, and you because you you particularly an industrial building like that there's while obviously the machinery is all gone the part of the infrastructure is still there so the the tracks for the gantry crane that would lift the streetcar bodies up off of the the trucks you could do maintenance those things are still there the, those elements there's uh i think maybe 10 fireplaces that are around the building that they use not just for warmth but also um almost uh, you know in the blacksmithing of things at some point early on and so you see these historic elements and you would never build a food hall with a gantry crane track in it but being able to create that as part of the atmosphere of the place, it really makes a big difference. They used as much of the old structure as they could. They even yes. took the uh, old roof and milled it down into the floor. Absolutely. And there, there is a, an element that has was removed years ago, a water tower, um, that they're, they want to return to the space. And so they, they found a water tower that was, that was the exact same one or same kind, I should say. And so they're even returning historic elements to the space, um, really for the sake of aesthetics. And so it's it's really interesting to to see that. And so the the aesthetic matters. And that same neighborhood we have Eulalie. Yes. And so Tampa Heights is a wonderful neighborhood. That is uh, that and Hyde Park, as far as Tampa goes, are the two oldest suburbs in the city. Uh, both started around the same time in the 1880s. Because, again, just like Armature Works, Eulalie, just a little bit to the south, is on the river, it had a slight industrial purpose to it. In Eulalie's case, it was the city of Tampa's waterworks. Uh, there was and is a spring there. Uh, the spring for a very long time was called Magby Springs. 
um, renamed by the city council after Eulalie at the um, request, I guess you could say, of an Eagle Scout candidate uh, who did some research and, and did not like what he learned about Magby and liked what he knew about the Eulalie story, um, kind of our version of the Pocahontas story. And so that waterworks, though, was just like the streetcar, car barn, a very important part to our history. It was where our drinking water came from until they built the dam for the north in the Hillsborough River for our, our drinking supply. And so that building is very historic and very important. And the views. I think because our waterfront has been so industrial, reusing these industrial buildings for a more public purpose affords just some beautiful views, both on the river, uh, armature looking south, if you're on the south side, um, into downtown, and then Eulalie, just that lawn where you get the, the river going uh, to the south, but also where it bends going to the west and then to the north, you really get a beautiful view. Rodney Kite Powell, it's great to have you here. Oh, it's wonderful as always. That's all for today. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram at The Zest Podcast. Visit us at thezestpodcast.com for recipes and stories that you might have missed. And be sure to subscribe to The Zest on our website or on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Robin Sussingham. Delia Colon and I produce The Zest with help from Craig George and Megan Trimble. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media.